Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's just pray and see what God says. Hallelujah. We worship you, Father. We glorify you so much. We are so thankful for everybody that's here in this building and everybody that's watching. And then people will watch in the next few days, over the next week, two weeks. God, thank you for this great opportunity to share your word and to speak to the revivalist. Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name for all these things. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. Well, as I often do, I'm going to speak to revivalist, and that's what it seems like we're, we're doing more than ever before is we're training you to go to the next level and take the next step into God. Oftentimes, um, we're throwing out the net, and I'm talking about the gospel net, more so than ever before. We're at concluding many of our services by leading people in a sinner's prayer, and I believe that's where we're going. I believe we're going to be, that's going to be part of this great harvest is to continually have a consciousness of the babes that are coming in. But the babes need you. You are so vitally important uh, for uh, the babes to come in, for the harvest to come in. We are God's hope in the earth. And God has placed a special anointing, and I say special, I'll qualify that. It's not that he loves us more, but when you qualify yourself, then specialness comes on you. You qualify, many are called, few are chosen. Everybody's called to come in. Few are chosen, that lesson we can't teach tonight, but everyone that is called can be chosen, but it's up to us based on our own elective. You've chosen uh, to continue to go to this church. You've, you've chosen to continue to listen to this message. So we have to continue to, to build upon where we're at as revivalists and help you to grow. Um, tonight's message is called, and uh, by title, Our Present Sufferings. And when I say that, our present sufferings, again, think with me. Let's set the stage that thinking with me on, I'm speaking to revivalists, people that are sold out. I am not speaking to, and, not, and not, I'm not, when I say I'm not speaking to, I'm not saying I'm divorcing you from this crowd, but I'm not speaking to you who are struggling with sin in your life. Uh, you can glean from this. You can have all of this that you want. But the objective of this message is not to get people to come out of sin or the sin question, but rather to realize where we are as revivalists and what our present suffering is and how that we are to react to that, how that we are to lean into that and what God expects of us. Um, so I want to describe for a little bit tonight um, the present sufferings of the revivalist, your present sufferings. And I believe that I'm not overstepping my bounds to say this has got to be in you. I mean, this is part of who you are. You're, you're suffering in these manners uh, going forward. 
Now let's just talk for just a moment about what the present sufferings of the revivalists are not. What they are not. And we can't cover all of, this is not an exhaustive list. But our present sufferings are not, as I said, uh, in regards to sin, the sin question. Our present sufferings are, it's a uh, limited suffering to sin. I would say a limited. In other words, the power of the new nature, when it meets temptation to sin, if you're walking in the strength of that new nature, there may be the essence of the temptation. In other words, you may feel it to some level. In other words, you know it's a temptation. But there's a difference between the man who is tempted um, because the world has come to him or Satan has come to him versus the man who is being led astray into the temptation because of his own lust. In other words, if he's being drawn away because he's still giving permission to a weakness in his life, then he's being drawn away of his own lust. So I'm not speaking to that man tonight, but let's talk about um, the limitations of what this suffering is not so we can get to what this suffering is. So 1 Peter chapter 4, please. And I have this in my notes, but I want to turn to the Biblica. First Peter chapter 4, and I'll read and you'll follow please. It says in verse 1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. Now that word arm means to equip. Equip yourselves likewise with the same mind. In other words, think like him, have an association with his mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, let's just talk for a minute about the immediate cease from sin. The immediate cease from sin is born again. Everything that is blatant sin, the born again spirit at conception has full grown capacity to run all of the <laughs> past past intruders or past, it's not even an intruder you're you're just dead that's they live there all sin lives there um it's the body of death or the the body of sin um it's the old nature all that was there immediately it has an immediate change to where that is run out and it will all be run out as much if you if there's any point in which you hold to anything and begin to nurse it or hold to it and give permission to it it's not because the capacity of the new nature did not have the or it's not because the new nature did not have the full blown capacity to run it all out it's just because a person says i kind of like that i don't want it to be run out too quick full blown righteousness 
at born again, created in righteousness and true holiness. That's the, the message from Ephesians. Um, so that's an immediate. But verse 2 says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Why? Because he suffered in the flesh uh, that he, he decides to cease from sin. Now, as I said, that's immediate, but he gives us an example of Christ. We should arm ourselves like Christ did, who suffered in the flesh. Um, when we see Christ suffering in the flesh, usually we think about cross, crucifixion, great drops of blood um, in the garden, Luke's description, and that's accurate. But Jesus suffered against the temptation of sin on a continual basis. And again, there's a difference. It was not a grueling kind of, it had him in a place of, let's say, up against the ropes. He was ruling continually out of the power of his born of God, first-time nature. But it gives us an example here that he that has, like Christ, who has suffered, you know, the book of Hebrews, you can stay there, but there's a scripture in the book of Hebrews It's in Yeah, it's in chapter 12. It says for consider verse 3 it says for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Now he's talking about persecution but it says here that we should consider him that endured such contradiction. The first place that Jesus ever shed blood in resistance to sin was in the garden. When sin was trying to come upon him, Luke says this, that his sweat became as great drops of blood. You're talking about wanting to resist the cup that was coming on you? He was resisting sin and yet he finally said, okay, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. So we have his life example of a living testimony against sin. But the word says here, it's amazing, in verse 2 it says that that man, the man that chooses not to sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time, what, his time on earth, in the flesh, to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For... The times past, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we, walk in less, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banqueting, and abominable adulteries. Excess of wine is getting drunk. Revelings is throwing great, you know, parties and riotous kind of living, banqueting, and abominable idolatries, <clears throat> wherein they, who's they, the world, think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot and, and speaking evil of you. Now that was 
Paul, or that was uh, rather Peter. Peter saying the world thinks um, they, they speak evil of you. Why? Because you, they think it's strange. That's the word I was looking for. They think it's strange because you don't do these things with them. <laughs> Peter, you need to come and visit the church of 2021, the overall church of 21. I have really some strong news for you, Peter. The church is not being thought of as a whole as being strange. As in, we're not partying, we're not getting drunk, we're not doing these excessive things. Why? There's no persecution because we're doing those same things. The church at large is doing all that. They're doing what? They're going to the bars. They're going to the clubs. They're having their beer parties. They're watching their naked movies. And they're talking about it in their Christian groups. Hey, did you see this movie? Did you do that? You know, I, believe me, I hear stories all, you know, about the beer parties, the Christian, Christian beer parties and all that stuff. So, not here. I mean, you can come to this church and I can't stop that. But you won't stand on my platform. You won't be in leadership. Now let's talk about limited. The other thing that is um, not really part of, and we'll just skip over this real quick. What is not part really of our sufferings present tense is persecution. We've not, there is persecution and it's started. And there will, it will increase. In the days ahead, it will increase two ways. We've said this. It will increase the same way it did then with Christ. The church and the state, the church and Caesar, both persecuted. The church delivered Christ to Caesar, and Caesar crucified him. Okay? So in the last days, we're going to find out that we're going to be just as persecuted by the, quote, church as we will be possible by uh, governmental things and so we keep praying we pray for our government we pray for change to come to America and I believe that's more than possible there is a level of persecution in America that has begun but it is nowhere near it's nowhere near the example that we see in the book of Acts it hasn't got to that so that's not yet our sufferings okay to to what I'm preaching about tonight to define our sufferings as revivalists, I mean, really to key in on what is, what am I going through? What, what do you think that we're as a whole going through the most as in the definition of suffering? To define that, we have to look at our high priest for a moment. And let's go to uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 5. I want us to look at some scriptures out of chapter 5, a number of verses there. In which I, I find really fascinating. I find them fascinating because when we think about Jesus, we think about someone that is complete, someone that is whole, someone that is very mature, someone that has really already arrived in perfect form and just lived his life in perfect form. And all that is true. There's, I'm not going to take away from any of that. But then we see something else from Scripture here that really is amazing to me because how it describes him 
as our high priest, and we are not going to try to talk about high priest tonight. That is another message for another day, and we're not going to try to describe the priesthood of Melchizedek, although these are mentioned in this scripture here. That's a priestly order that describes the order of priesthood of which Jesus was taken from, not the Levitical priesthood, but God took him from the Melchizedek order priesthood. That may open up a can of worms for you, but I'm sorry we can't go into that tonight. But let's look at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Now this is talking about Old Testament priest and how the Levitical priesthood worked. That he, the high priest, may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sins. Who can have compassion, that man, that high priest, can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmities. So it's talking about the high priest. He could have compassion because he himself was compassed about with infirmities. The difference between the earthly high priest and the heavenly high priest, which Christ is, is that every high priest had to offer up sacrifice for the sins of the people and himself. Christ was offering up the sacrifice for the people, but not for himself. He was receiving the sin and being the sin offering for the people, but not for himself. He who knew no sin became sin, that we through his righteousness might become also the righteousness of God. And it says in verse 3 that by reason hereof he ought, this man, this high priest, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, and this is God, his father, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, that's a scripture, as he saith also in another scripture, another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he takes him, skips the Levitical priesthood, puts him in a Melchizedek or order priesthood, and that's all for another lesson. But here's the fascinating scripture that I want to look at tonight. Verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, who, meaning Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, now this is when he was living in an earth suit, offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that, that was able, unto him being God, who was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now I want to stop right there before I read these next few verses it's easy to think, and it would be mostly right, or a lot right, to think that the cruxable or the, 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 the main point of his agony, as in suffering, would be that last 24, 48 hours going in to the cross, sweating great drops of blood. But that's not entirely what this scripture says, because this scripture says, in the days, who in the days of his flesh... The word days means lifetime or era 
or time while he was living on earth. So we can't just boil this scripture down to the last 24 to 48 hours and say, this is just talking about, no, it's talking about how he lived his life. And it says here, who in the days of his flesh, I have to read this again, it's so powerful, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, strong crying and tears unto him, that's being God, that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. This is a fascinating to me. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, we know this. He didn't suffer sickness. He didn't suffer giving in to sin. He didn't suffer poverty. He didn't suffer all the things that he redeemed us from. So he didn't suffer. In other words, there was no suffrage on him for that. But the word says here, and being, this uh, continues to fascinate me. I, every time I read this, I can't, you know, here's this perfect image that I have of Jesus, and it is perfect. But when I read this, I realize a maturing process that took place in his life as well, as my high priest. And it says, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Listen to the Amplified. I like some of these parts that I hear. It says this concerning these verses I just read. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in things relating to God, to, to offer both gifts and sacrifice, sacrifices for sin. He is able to exercise gentleness and forbearance towards the ignorant and erring, since he himself also is liable to moral weakness and physical infirmity. Now that's talking about the earthly, okay? And because of this, he is uh, obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. He's still making the example of the Levitical. Besides, one does not appropriate for himself the honor of being a high priest, but he is called of God and received it of him just as Aaron did. So too Christ, the Messiah, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed and exalted by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, as he says also in another place, you are a priest, a priest appointed forever after the order with the rank of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up definite, listen to this, definite special petitions for that which he not only wanted, but needed. And supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was always able to save him out from death. And he was heard because of his reverence towards God. That's a worshiper there. His godly fear, his piety, in that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the birth presence or from the bright presence of the Father. Although he was a son, 
he learned active special, this is in parentheses, active special obedience through what he suffered. He completed and his completed experience, making himself perfect, making himself perfect. Now that's a little different thought about Jesus. Making himself perfectly equipped. He became the author and the source of eternal salvation to all those who give heed and obey him. I would also add this for our way of thinking tonight. Jesus not only became the author for eternal salvation, he became the source for revival. In other words, not just what we glean, but how we look at and how we are able to receive revival. Okay, he's our prototype. Got to do it just like you, Jesus. If I do, I'll get the same results. Eventually, I'll get the same results. And so when, you, when I read this, <laughs> when I read how agonizing Jesus was throughout his life and how that he spent time in prayer, weeping and crying, um, so much for the argument of, of, of the necessity for prayer. I mean, this is my Lord. So much for the argument of anyone saying, well, it's just all by, you know, all by grace, that's works. You guys are, you guys are in works. Well, you know what? Gary always does it. I think it's good. He takes out the box. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's the picture with all the impossible, you know, situations. And says, look, if you can do this in your way, do it. The challenge is there. But until you can do it, and you're, you're telling me I'm in works, and that, you know, that's not always the argument. But listen, again, to me, this is Jesus spending time with his Father, agonizing in prayer, weeping with tears uh, in the days of his flesh. And you know what? Let me say this. That is not... What it is not describing when it's talking about he's weeping uh, in these agonizing prayers. That's not a, um, I'm whipped, God. I'm discouraged, God. You know, the devil said this to me, God. It's far, it is a fellowship with him in allowing God to in every situation, I have this in my notes, but I'm a little ahead of myself, but it's good. It's not a self-pity weeping, but it's a grown-up weeping that takes him into a place where I'm standing with you against all contradictions, Father, against what I'm seeing. Now, what are some of the continual sufferings of Christ? Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We've, we've looked at Philippians a number of times, but it, it just reaffirms what I'm talking about when I say the sufferings of Christ and we are partaking of those sufferings as revivalists in the hour that we live verse 1 says this I'm going to read the first 10 so I'm going to get started if there be any consolation therefore any consolation in Christ if there be any comfort of love any fellowship in the spirit if any bowels of mercy that's heartfelt renderings Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same, same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul's writing this to the church at Philippi. 
Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. This preposition, uh, even to the, the death of the cross. In other words, he's saying this. The first death is his continual life. His continual living. Even to the death of the cross was because he lived that kind of life. And laying down his deity and becoming a servant and saying, I choose you, Father. See, I don't get this. You say, well, what, you know, what, what is it? You know, I can't explain it to you. I can just give you the word truth on it. I don't know exactly how this works. I don't know how that a God who is totally God and then can come in human form in a human body, somehow God is so powerful that he can make a restriction on himself to say, when I get to where I'm going and going into that body, I will not act as God while I'm in there. And I, I, I'll never forget not to because I'm God, but I'm, I'm preordaining that when I get into that body. So Jesus lived out his life as an earthen man. God's in there, but you see all of everything that Jesus did in the same aspects that you and I. Because then we have no excuse. We have no excuse for not being able to walk free from sin or even to go into revival. Because he didn't go, he didn't perform the miracles through his godship. He th performed the miracles through his human nature, born again, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was on that. So that's a great mystery. It's a wonderful mystery, but it gives us hope. If he did it, we can do it. That's right. So... It says here, and God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and earth and things in heaven and in earth and things under the earth. So that f finishes up that. Um, well, verse 11, I have it, in, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what are the some of the sufferings of his life? Um, Let's think about this, because this will help take us to where we're going here in just a few moments, as far as I want us, to, because we could talk about a lot of different things that he had to resist and choosing the will of the Father on a continual basis, and that's, that's our life. We have to continue. I don't know how dead you are. It's not my job to go around and follow and find out how dead you are. It's, it, you're not supposed to follow me around and find out how dead I am. We're supposed to be believing and encouraging each other um, in this dying process. But I do know this, I believe this with all my heart, the more this vessel is broken, and it's not me standing here, the more the Holy Spirit will flow through me unabated. Whatever pride's left in me, whatever arrogance is left in me, whatever argumentative ability, you know, you cross me up, my whatever, whatever's there, he wants us to move out of his authority. That doesn't mean that we become a floor mat and we don't ever have an answer, but our answers are, fill, are, are anointed answers. You're talking about shutting the crowd down 
if you can speak with his authority, <laughs> you can shut all arguments up and drop the mic and walk away. I mean, it's, it's his authority. So, um, but let's talk about the wilderness um, for just a moment. The wilderness temptations. What were some of his sufferings? One, I will tell you this, the temptation, you got to get this, the temptations that he faced in the wilderness uh, never completely went away. Whatever you see in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, those are just a brief description of the temptations that Jesus faced. Those never went away throughout his life. And how do you know that? Because, and you don't have to turn there, but Luke finishing up the temptations 4.13 says this, and when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. See, the devil has only one MO, mode of operation, only one MO that is to continue repeating the same temptations, hoping for the day that you are too weak to resist. He really doesn't have uh, a whole lot extra, you know, in his, when he, especially when he levies on you the big temptations he'll just come back at a different season and that's what he did with Jesus the word says he left him for a season that means a, a period of time a short time but whatever he tried in the wilderness now he tries uh, in public or he tries in whatever now whatever is whatever was uh, an illusion that he painted in the wilderness becomes a living reality in public okay the woman the, the temptation to, um, to, you know, to, to give up on humanity. Uh, and, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want us to focus on this one particular area of his suffering so that we can relate. The devil said to him in those temptations, and we won't go into them, I'll just read this. Uh, if you wanted to go to Matthew 4, 1, you could, you could be turning there. As I say this, uh, the first temptation had this preface. The first temptation had this preface with it. If thou be, if thou be. This was the beginning, and I said this, I wrote this down. This was the beginning poison against the mind of Christ to weaken him against the temptation. Did you get that? I hope you did, because it's very important. When, G when Satan said, if thou be, if thou be what? If thou be the Son of God. And that was a, that's a rattlesnake bite, right to start with, to inject poison into his mind to begin to get him to start reasoning, am I really who I think I am? Because again, remember, his, godsh his godship was, in a certain sense, very silent to him. God can't step in and intervene and say i'm going to convince you again uh no whatever the holy spirit has ever taught you that you are you got to stand on that and whatever you've ever seen in my word about who you are you've got to stand on that i'm sorry i'm my arms are crossed i can't do it i'm you know i might i don't understand how all that works but the logos the the uh the deity part of him standing there with you know arms crossed and say i i can't you know i'm listening to all this like I'm standing on a, somewhere in the corner listening to this, your temptation, and, and, but I, I can't do anything about it. That's the part of me that can't intervene. So he's got to go on. So the, Satan's 
levy of temptation on him was just as uh, strong in that sense of the word as it would be to us because he's got to get past human reasonings. He's got to get past human. So the first thing he says, if thou be, to inject that poison, if thou be. Um, verse 1 of 4 says, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. So we see that, and that's all we need to read there. Um, God, I will say this, if you know the story, God had just, his father had just said in the River Jordan, Thou art my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay? So he just heard that in the very, that very word of God that was spoken to him by his father is challenged immediately. That's the, that's the whole Genesis 3 thing. That's the whole Genesis 3 argument. God says, don't eat of that tree because in the day that you do, you'll die. Genesis 3, the serpent shows up. He says to Eve, the very first, hath God said. Has he really has he really said? He introduces it smooth. Has God said as if to make it a question? Then, like the next verse or two verses, then he just blatantly blip, you know, spouts out, God has not said. Thou shalt not die, rather. So this is that poison of the serpent, if you want to put it that way, was interjected to start with in Jesus' mind. I want to say something that I think is valuable to all of us, especially as a revivalist. There's a thin line sometimes between, and you really have to stay in the presence of God and in the Holy Spirit. There's a thin line between hating the flesh and letting the flesh condemn you because you're not where you think you should be. What does that mean? As a person going into God, we hate what the flesh represents when the flesh tries to dominate um, the situation, the anger, the, the sense of jealousy, the whatever, the emotions, those kinds of things. Um, we, it's all right to hate that and say, no, I don't want nothing to do with that. But then also, on this trek into revival, if the enemy can buy your temporary mistakes i'm not saying the temporary now uh, clarify i'm not talking about you going to the bar getting drunk and having an adulterous affair i'm talking about you losing your temper or you doing something that you shouldn't have said or you talk too much you know you can talk too much <laughs> the word says in the book of proverbs in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin what does that mean it means you can talk so much that eventually you say something about somebody you know you're talking about somebody you're starting to, an objective conversation about them and then if you just keep talking before long, it'll lead into too much. <laughs> and in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. So be quiet when you should be quiet. Have you ever been there, as Gary says, moving on? You know, you, you think after the conversation, like, you know what? I, t I, I should have shut my mouth like 10 minutes ago. I just kept talking, and eventually I said something that I knew that I was supposed to keep in private to myself. So don't let water out of the dam too long, stay focused. Amen. Um, so those kinds of things, they can go immediately and get under the blood. 
But at the same time, there also is a thin line sometimes where you have to say, okay, I'm still on the path. I'm still on the walk. I, I hate that kind of stuff. Jesus, forgive me. I'm determined not to fall into that. But, you know, if you let him, the enemy, come behind that and say, if thou be, you know, if thou be a revivalist, if thou be truly, really fighting for this thing and dying to the flesh, how did you let that happen? How did you let that temporary moment, that lapse to the flesh? So you got to guard against that as well. Amen. Um, the poison that Satan would interject to the minds who are fighting for revival. I'm just going to read what I just said. If all this, now this is, this is new. This is the poison he'll inject to us that we're fighting against, we're suffering against in this certain, word, in certain way. In other words, we're resisting against. Satan will say this, if all this is real, because he, he put this illusion to start with before he, before he ever said, why don't you turn, prove who you are, turn the rocks into bread, the stones into bread. But before that, he questioned, are you really who you think you are? Okay, so to us, our resistance or our suffering would be, if all of this is real, where are the miracles? Where are the miracles? Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. Not, I'm just not talking about people. I'm talking about from spiritual forces. Where are all the dead that you could have not, uh, where are all the dead that you could not save? Where are they at? Shouldn't they be sitting in your services? God, and then he would follow up. Whether you hear this verbatim, it's the essence. God has not said, thou shalt have a revival. God has not said the kingdom of God shall come again in full power. That's an illusion, okay? Okay, how many more times, this is a question that you don't have to answer, but it's a question that just leads into a point here. How many more times in the next few years in Jesus' ministry, after the temptation, the first temptations, the three temptations, did Satan say to Jesus, you are not who you believe you are. Now, we know he came at him to start with, to try to get him to say, to, to, to think. Now, here's a human being. Now, you've got an angel come, and an angel says, to start with, here's the, here's the snake bite. The snake bite is this. The poison released is, are you, really, are you really who you think you are? Are you really? So, here's our fight against what we have not yet seen is the argument are you guys really who you think you are? Are you really God's hope in the earth? And I know that he said this to him. I know that he continually, those temptations were not one and done. I know he said this to him because of scripture that I have on it. Now you can turn there or you can, you know, you can uh, write this down. But Matthew 24 or 12, 24 says this. Matthew 12, 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So they were saying it. He's not who he presents himself. But listen, Satan had a voice, but Satan was also saying through them to Christ, and believe me, the spiritual part of it was being said to him as well. 
I don't have to ask a show of hands. I won't. You know this, that a lot of times when you're being bothered by something that Satan's trying to torment you, somebody usually comes up and confirms that by something a lot of times they'll say to you. God bless them. They don't even know sometimes they're not even speaking. You know, they don't know the, the spirit they're speaking of. So Jesus was already being bombarded by the Pharisees. But, but watch this. Uh, Mark, this just lets us know that that spirit was still out there questioning who he was. Mark 3, uh, 21 and 22. And when his friends, this is not the Pharisees. When his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he's beside himself. What does that mean? He's crazy. He has lost his marbles. All this that he's doing, he is, he's crazy. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, he, has a, he, he hath Beelzebub, by the prince of devils, cast out the devils. That temptation in the wilderness for a season ended, then it continued on in many different aspects. There, there, by these verses alone, I see that Jesus was continually questioned, are you who you say that you are? And of course, he never wouldn't give in to that. How many times did Jesus tell, uh, how many times did Satan tell Jesus, you're crazy to believe that you're the son of God and that you will change the world through your sacrifice? I think there was many temptations just in him or coming against him and giving up um you, you look at the disciples and i give me give me uh, i'll give you this they weren't born again but when you see their their uh how they vacillated back and forth and back and forth and they lost most of the 70 with one with one preaching with one preaching about his about drinking his blood and eating his flesh he lost most of those 70 and basically he said uh, many, the word said, when I say the 70, it said many that followed him, no, followed him no more. That had to be part of because we know that the 12 stayed with him. And he said, well, you go also. They, G, Paul, Peter said, where will we go? But I really believe that he was, he was saying, you know what, guys? What I'm speaking to you is spirit and life. It's truth. If, if, you, if you can't take it, there's the door. You need to go with him. God will get me started with another bunch if I need to. But there had to be multiple times in Jesus' life where Satan not only said, you're not, who you're, say, you're not who you think you are. He may have even told him, because listen, if, if you have crazy thoughts come against you, Jesus had crazy thoughts come against him, and the crazy being not he was crazy, the devil had to be saying, you know what? You are casting out devils by me. God's, not, God's spirit's not working with you. you. You're a crazy man. You're possessed with a devil. You don't even know who you are. So all these temptations continue to, to follow Jesus as he suffered against the fight to do what he knew he was called to do which was save humanity. Now we turn this into where we're at. What's, what's our fight? We've been called not to save humanity by our sacrifice of giving our life. We've been called to reconcile every man to Christ in this great harvest. 
There had to be times where Jesus felt like are the, you know, the, the enemy would call, try to interject, are they worth it? Are they really worth it? Is humanity worth it? He had to fight that. How many times will the enemy come to you and say, is the fight worth it? Is prayer and fasting worth it? Okay, let's move on. Before he ever sweated great drops of blood in the ultimate sacrifice, there were many times where he would spend out, based on our original text, um, and, and again, I can't tell you how much I personally love this. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews 5, 8, 9, or 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, this is his life, okay? Not just the last garden, whipping post, crucifixion. This is his life. With strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and that it was heard, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Um, there is such a thing as learned. Now, here's what, I, here's what I get out of that, which is amazing to me. There's such a thing as learned obedience. Learned obedience. When we talk about immediate obedience is reconciling everything to that moment in time where you're born again and it drives sins, sin out, sins out, okay? Or sin, sin in itself, the fullness of sin. But here we have a direct quote from the Word who says that he learned obedience. So there is a learning of obedience. There's an immediate obedience, which is the cancellation of the sin problem, but there is a learned obedience that must take place during and against the trial at hand. Jesus faced many trials, suffering against the temptation to quit, even the death of the cross. That was the last, that was the last crescendo. That was the last, okay, giving in. Okay, I give myself. But leading up to that was a million decisions. As I said last week, Catherine Kuhlman said, I have died a thousand deaths. What does die a thousand deaths mean? She didn't physically die a thousand. She came she reconciled herself daily, dead unto Christ, not my will, thy will be done. That's not just you doing that to Christ in a void of no other influences. That's oftentimes with a devil, with a cannon in your face, saying you are not who you think you are, quit, all the emotions of hell coming against you, and you dying the death to say, I will finish my course against all of everything that I see that's a contradiction. Do you see that? Our contradiction is this. We have a present contradiction. Our present contradiction is this doesn't work. It doesn't work because of everything you see by natural circumstances. That's a lie. We choose to believe the truth. There's such a thing as learned obedience. There's an immediate obedience, which is the cancellation, as I said, of the sin problem. But there's a learned obedience, based on the scripture we read, that must take place during and against the trial at hand. Because it is learned, because it's learned, just because I say the word learned, does not mean it is learned through the process of trial and error. It's not like Jesus, you know, he made a mistake and then he, he oh, I'm going to fix that. I'm gonna make it. 
it was not a, it's not a learned as in trial and error or failure, but rather a reliance on God to take you past the present infirmity into his fullness. That's the learning. If he spent all night in prayer often, we know he did, and some of those times must have been with strong crying and tears. It wasn't, uh, there's no way in, in my, possible in my imagination that he's crying, oh God, the devil's picking on me. He's, he, the devil told me I'm not your son. God, am I really? Am I really? Absolutely not. There's no way possible. But the strong crying and tears was the transfer of his continual presence and him receiving in obedience to saying, I will not quit. I will not stop. I will continue to pursue. I will learn to resist the temptation to quit. This learning process of not quitting will take me all the way up to the ultimate sacrifice there would have never been an ultimate had he begun to go the way of the flesh even not just i'm not talking about the way of flesh like adultery or fornication those are the big uglies that would have that would have wrecked everything for all mankind but even if he would have got to the place where father says I want you to go there. And his will was, I don't want to go there. If he would have got in that situation of resisting, dying, there would have never, ever been. A, he would have, once he got to the cruxable, when he got to the garden and the beating that was beyond all beatings, the willingness of the flesh would have had, it would have trumped him. It would have, it would have played its trump card and it wouldn't, I, I don't believe it would have happened even if there was not per se sin, okay? Are you getting anything? I hope. Because it is learned does not mean, I want to say that again, it does not mean it's learned through the process of trial and error as, or failure, but rather reliance on God to take you past the present infirmity of his flesh or our flesh. The birthing church, and that's you, I'm calling you birthings, you know, male or female, you're helping birth this, and those of you watching, you're the birthing church, is learning a present obedience. This is our present learning of obedience, just like he learned obedience. Through the things that we are suffering, the contradiction to what we believe, we have, what we have received in the word and prophecy. We believe you know, we, we've went to the Word and said, this is what the Word says. This is what present-day speaking says. You're going to have, the revival has been released. You are on line for a revival. Uh, the contradiction to what we have received in the Word and prophecy is in front of us. Our choice is to believe what God has said rather than the natural evidence. As he suffered, as he suffered against contradictions in his own ministry, we are choosing to suffer to the, the sufferings of obedience to heaven's challenge for the impossible. What does that mean? It means this. I don't want to get up. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this, but I don't want, you know, I've just got to use myself as an example. I don't, it, it doesn't matter when you pray. I, it does matter that you are praying. I don't want to get up the hours sometimes and pray. I don't want to fast. I don't want my flesh. But I believe first 
first of all, I've fallen in love with him. Okay, that's, that's my first link. That's, that's the first thing that gets me up or gets me, keeps me going. That's the, against that kind of temptation or suffering that says, 20 years, 20 years. Now, now I've been thinking about this, so this isn't coming from a place where I'm thinking. I'm just thinking about this right now, so it's not coming from a, a deep well. 20 years, what have you seen? Where's the multitudes? Where's the miracles? Where's the... The suffering is not a suffering as in fear, doubt, anxiety. It's pushing myself or you, as an example, past hath God said against what is circumstantial or what is evidential evidence and saying no everything that I see yet is not the truth the truth is the kingdom of God has come and the truth is the kingdom of God his will will be done does that make sense? Amen. Uh, he suffered against contradictions in his own ministry. Okay. Choosing the sufferings of obedience to heaven's challenge for the impossible. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12, 3 says this. For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. In other words, give up. We are against hope, believing in hope. Now, I'll read this for you, but you can turn there because you're, you're fast turners. Uh, Romans 4, 17 and 18, just two verses. This is concerning Abraham. It says, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. That's 17 and 18, Romans 4, 17 and 18. Before him, that's God, whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. You know, our orders from heaven is in, I've re- you know, I've released revival. That's come from him. So he's seeing it before we're ever actually seeing it. He's actually seeing it. He's calling it. God's calling it into existence. Verse 18 says, now it's talking about Abraham here because he was the father of faith, using him as an example, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall I seed be. Now, that only the reason why I bring that scripture up, 18, is this. He hoped against hope. In other words, the, the, the spiritual hope that he had was based on the word of God. God said, I will give you a seed, and I will raise, if you sacrifice him, I will raise him from the dead. Against natural hope, which said that's impossible, he hoped. The hope on the word of God against natural evidence became stronger in Abraham's life. And this is the example given to us. You have to hope against hope. You have to have the hope of God, which is not the hope like wish. The word hope here is great, a great deal deeper than that. It means godly expectations. It means you have an expectation in the spirit that supersedes that which is in the natural. And that's the definition of faith, of course. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it. You, all of you could quote it. Now, faith is the substance of those things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
So we must, against hope, believe in hope, this is our fight against all contradictions. Now, the Amplified says concerning Hebrews 1, uh, 11, 1, it says, Now faith is, the, listen to this, it's the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed. I like that. The title deed of things we hope for. Being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Isn't that something? What is not yet revealed to the senses. So I wrote this. This is my declaration. What is my title deed for revival? What is my proof of the things I cannot see? What is my absolute conviction that causes me to live my whole life beyond all my senses? It is, has God said. And yes, God hath said, Immokalee will receive revival. Amen? We've received that. Romans 8, 5 says this, or 8, 15. You can turn there. We're, we're kind of closing up here, but we're getting closer. But you have to, to go. If you'd like to, please go with me to Romans 8, 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself, or better translation, himself being the Holy Ghost, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now our suffering is not, as I said, sickness, disease. Those things come against us, but that's not an acceptable suffering. What is acceptable to him and what is pleasing to him is the fight against the contradiction that this isn't real and that we're not going to have it. Has God said? That fight is, he can't remove that from us. We have to go past it. We have to actually conquer it. We have to go past that particular suffering. Then verse 26 says this, concerning that after we suffer, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together with him. Later in that same chapter, very familiar to us, verse 26, Likewise the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, also helpeth my infirmities, or our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God now I'll tell you this and I'm not bragging on myself I believe I'm saying this for a lot of different people that are listening and this is all because of who Christ is in me not of my arriving at anything I'm not suffering infirmity of the flesh to go sin I mean, every man has thoughts and different things, like every woman that has things. But there's a hard no and a yes no. You know, the hard no is if you have to go to, like, 1 Peter you know, 4, 1, where you're suffering, and there may be times. Now, this message is for you. Listen, if you're suffering against sin in a real stronghold in your life that's really an ugly, there's, there's, there's the blood. There's the blood. There's forgiveness. And the grace is not... That the true grace of God is to depart from unrighteousness. It, the true grace of God is to stop it. And that grace will help you stop it now. I mean, right now. That's the grace of God. That's the true grace of God to, 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 to use the power of the new nature. But my, my infirmity like yours, going back to the thought, my infirmity like yours is this. 
we're suffering, desiring to see this thing birthed. We got some mamas in the spirit. We got some daddies in the spirit that are saying, God, I know I'm not perfect. That's not the argument. Um, you know, and we have to get past, we have to keep going into allowing him to purge our life. I know that, but I, I, I thank God that he's still working with people while they're being purged. Amen. You know, we, we can't, we have to look at these guys in the word with incredible respect. Peter, Paul, the disciples, the apostles. But we also, we also, the word is really cool because, cool, the word is really wonderful because it gives us a continual, uh, you know, what really was going on. It doesn't memorialize these guys. I mean, Paul and Barnabas had such, and I don't know how far along they were. Uh, I'm sure there was a growth process. Even They had such sharp contention with each other concerning Mark that they departed from each other. You know, Paul said no. He, you know, that's another story. Paul said, you know, Barnabas was his uncle. Barnabas said, let's take him on this next missionary trip. Paul, I'm paraphrasing. Paul said, no, he's a sissy. He wimped out. He quit halfway through. He went back home. I don't like sissies. I don't care if he is your nephew. He's not going with us again. And, you know, I'm kind of like Paul, you know. <laughs> I'm like the NFL. You get rookie, you get one shot, you drop the pass in the end zone. I'm not throwing you the ball anymore. That's it. So, but later in life, Paul writes an epistle that said, bring Mark with you. He's beneficial to me. You know, either Paul's old age softened him up or Mark changed or both. But anyway, what I'm saying is the road to revival doesn't take humanity away from us. Um, you know, you, you, we may have to, in the, um, well, there's times in the revival you're still going to be human. You know, I mean, your humanity doesn't go away with the, the outpouring. You're still going to have to be uh, changing on a continual basis. Verse 26, he says he makes intercession for us with groanings. So the groanings now, I believe, are more towards this birthing, the suffering against the contradiction to say, I know what I see in the natural, but I will not receive it in the spirit. The greatest infirmity to the revivalist presently is, is the full birthing, uh, this outpouring against all contradiction. Now, I rewrote, I rewrote, not that I'm qualified, I rewrote these scriptures, these two verses here for my own sake. Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us with our infirmities in all the evidential contradictions against the revival that God has said has been released from heaven. He is making intercession for us with groanings that are beyond our ability to pray. He knows what is the truth of God against every lie presented against the truth. And he is making intercession for us that we will continue to believe the truth against every lie and against all natural evidence to receive revival. Hallelujah. That helps me. Now here's, my, here's our, learning, our learning obedience. And I said, there's an immediate obedience. There's a process of going through a trial uh, and having to continue to, you know, Jesus won all of, he, everything that he learned, he didn't, as again, 
not through trial and error. There was no error, but a continual dependency he had to learn. Here's our learning uh, obedience through the things in which we are presently suffering concerning revival. Uh, last page, truly. Uh, one, we, do, we don't care. We, here, here, here's, our, here's our leaning into obedience against, the, here's the suffrage, okay? One, we don't care if private worship is dry or wet with presence. We're going to do it anyhow. That's in material, okay? Two, we don't care if the flesh makes every excuse in the world why we don't have time to pray. We're going to do it anyhow. Three, we don't care if the flesh hates fasting. We're going to do it anyhow. That's just, I mean, that's, that's our suffering against the present. The birthing really is taking place on two fronts. This is what I've observed over the last year of prophecies and different things. The birthing is taking place on two fronts presently. One, the purging process, uh, whatever residue is left. Uh, and again, I don't think I have to continue to say this, but I do. This is not bar hopping and running around with, you know, the wrong ladies of the night and all that. That should have stopped to start with. Uh, this is the purging of motivations. Um, a lot of different things that the, 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 the Holy Spirit is standing up with the new nature and saying, all oh, this has got to go. It's got to go. You got to, you got to. But then the other part is presence. There's another part, presence. He's, he's saying to all of us, come away with me. Two parts in this thing that is birthing. One is the purging. The other one is presence. Come away, which means spend time in my presence, worshiping intimacy, uh, which transfers over, uh, really, that intimacy transfer over the bread that we're seeking God for. We are suffering against all present contradictions, but we will have the last laugh, and this is the last word. Um, I remember what Gary received a long time ago, and I, I can't remember if he said he received it directly or it was given to him or whatever, but I believe he, he received it directly. He said, God said, you will laugh out loud when you remember that you once thought that the miracles were so hard when you see them flow like water. Amen. So that will be who we are in Christ. I don't believe Jesus strained for one miracle. I don't believe that he strained one for one second. I believe he just, it, it was what it was. And because he continued to go forward and suffer against not only the sin question, but just the choice question of learning obedience. Okay, let's all stand. Father, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy and your blessings and all of you, all that you are in growing us up in Christ. We thank you for your word. Your word is spirit and is life. And we give you all the praise and glory. Did you get anything? Hallelujah. Amen. That's all that matters. Blessings to all of you out there. And we love you.